All right, our passage for today is from the book of Daniel. I'm going to start in chapter 1. This is verses 1 through 7. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspheneth, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. You may be seated. There'll be a quiz later on all those names, so uh, I hope you paid attention. Um, kidding, of course. Good morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we are here in this city to uh, work for, to live to, and to point to Jesus. Uh, we hope that uh, as you're here among us and with us, that more than anything, that you see Jesus even as we fail and even as we slip and even as we continually miss the mark. Uh, our greatest desire is that you wouldn't see perfect people here in this place, but rather you would see a perfect Savior and uh, be led to uh, seek Him with all of your heart and mind. And uh, if you're doing that as a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to dig in. Uh, Jason mentioned this morning our city groups. It's a great place to do that. Uh, please don't feel a pressure like you got to do something great to be a part of one of those things. You just show up in all your mess, uh, just like everybody else that's there, and uh, begin to learn what it looks like to live authentic one, uh, amongst one, one another. I uh, also want to mention that if you're a doubter or a skeptic or just kind of uh, accidentally got here because somebody promised you lunch, um, we're really glad that you're here. One of our main reasons for being here is that those who doubt God uh, would come into a place where they're safe to question those doubts uh, and to wrestle with their own doubts and to say, is God something that I could actually consider maybe even someone that I could know? Uh, and what does that look like and what's that all about? So please, if you're in that place, know that this is a safe place for you. Uh, you can you can voice those doubts. You can air those grievances. We understand. Some of us have been there, uh, myself included. And so we want to encourage you uh, just to kind of wrestle with those things out loud and right here amongst us. Amen. So uh, one of the best ways that we do that is we walk through scripture and we say, what has God said about himself? Right. We know what the world has said about God. And most of the time that's inaccurate. So let's trust God to tell us what is true about himself. And so much of uh, what the world says about God isn't what scripture says about God. Uh, and often what the church says about God also isn't what scripture says about God. That's just kind of another little side note. So we really want to seek after the truth of what God says in his word. And so that's why we kind of walk through scripture. And that's why we're turning to the Old Testament today. We've been um, 
in a couple of different series recently, and uh, one of them took a, a, a few weeks and walked through kind of the story of all of Scripture, and so we spent a little bit of time in the Old Testament with that. Uh, recently in the fall, we did a series in Psalms where we kind of uh, wrestled with the psalmists through their questions and doubts and emotions as they went through all that God had brought them through, uh, and so that was a good time, but uh, we haven't really looked at an entire book, and we're going to try to do that here in this series, um, and the book we're going to look at is Daniel. Um, now, we're not going to walk verse by verse, chapter through chapter, through the entire book of Daniel. That's typically how we walk through Scripture. We're not going to do that with Daniel. Uh, we're rather going to take some cues from Daniel's life and look then at our lives and at the place that we find ourselves in, compare and contrast that with the life of Daniel and see what has God done to bring us to this place and what is it that he wants to do through us for his glory. Because we see in Daniel's story that God brought Daniel and some other guys, names, ready? Okay, and some other guys uh, to a place for a purpose, even though it was a time of deep darkness for God's people. And so there are a lot of similarities uh, from Daniel's story to our story. And so we're going to uh, just kind of take some of the wisdom of the book of Daniel. So we're not going to walk through the whole thing necessarily, but we're going to take a lot of our cues from his story. Um, and today kind of begins in chapter one. Some of the other cues that we're going to take from this series is from a book called Thriving in Babylon. Uh, Larry Osborne's a tremendous pastor out in California, um, and uh, he's written several books, uh, of which this is my second favorite uh, that he's written. My first favorite, if you want to know, is called Accidental Pharisees. Um, so Thriving in Babylon is also something that we're going to take some cues from for this series. We're not going to walk through the whole book necessarily, but if you're a reader and you like to kind of get deeper into some of the thought, it might be a good idea for you to pick that book up on Amazon and uh, kind of just read it as we journey along. Today, uh, we're taking a little bit of the cues from chapter 2 of his book, uh, and then as well from chapter 1 of Daniel. Um, and then the final person that I want to mention is a missionary named William Carey. Uh, William Carey was a British missionary to India, uh, one of the very first Christian missionaries over there in India. Uh, he began schools and he started churches, uh, and he had this um, kind of uh, rule book by which he lived by and encouraged other missionaries to live by, and it's just simply called the 11 Commandments of Mission. Uh, and so I'm going to publish that 11 Commandments of Mission on our blog sometime this week. And so it's something that we can take a look at. And week by week as we journey through this series, we're also going to take a few of his commandments along the way and just look at what he said about how to be a missionary. Um, surprisingly, realizing how appropriate what he said about being a missionary in India is for us as Christians living in uh, what I would call a post-Christian West, right? So, so many of what uh, of his kind of thoughts and dispositions about being a missionary, we would be wise if we were to adapt them uh, to our own lives and realize how true they are for us because truly we are uh, missionaries here in this world. So that's kind of the flyby summary of, of this series called The People Planted as we look at um, just mission and, and look at that through the life of Daniel. So usually at this time I read through our passage again uh, after somebody else had read through it earlier, but we're going to skip all the names, but we are going to look at it again in just a minute. So uh, before we jump in though, let's pray and just ask God for a lot of help right now as uh, we walk through this word. Here we go. God, thanks for uh, this gathering of your people. Um, as we look at the life of Daniel, man, there are so many similarities uh, between what you did uh, among his generation and among his people, um, similar to what you're doing here among us and amongst this generation. Uh, and so, God, we pray that you would um, just add wisdom to our days, Lord. Would you open our, our eyes 
uh, our minds, and, and most importantly, our hearts to see uh, that there is uh, reason and purpose and order and, and glory for God amidst everything that is happening uh, in and around our lives. And Lord, we are uh, people who live in the midst of uh, darkness and confusion often. Um, and we know that light is not to be found in ourselves, in our own enlightenment, or in the great achievements of men, um, but rather light is to be found as it comes to us from heaven, especially in Jesus, who uh, is the light of God given uh, to us in darkness as we celebrated at Advent. Um, and so, Lord, we desperately need to see Jesus. If we're going to understand Daniel, if we're going to understand uh, mission, if we're going to understand our our day and our time and uh, what it is that we are called to do uh, in St. Pete. And so, Lord, awaken us to all this, we pray, and uh, help our hearts today. We get filled with distraction, me included. And so, God, please help us this morning uh, to hear from you. We desperately need it uh, in a day and age where we are hearing uh, every other voice but yours. Uh, might our ears be tuned to hear you clearly and to see Jesus this morning. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so to speak of mission, we actually have to go backwards. Daniel's not far enough back in the story to really talk appropriately about mission in regards to kind of the biblical um, idea of God's greater mission. Uh, so we actually have to go all the way back to Genesis 1. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn back to Genesis 1. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some free ones in the back. You can take it, write your name in the front of it, call it yours, um, or use it today and then give it to your enemy tomorrow. Um, whatever you want, but three Bibles back there, and of course, your apps are incredibly useful. We'll have some words on the screen, too. Um, but the mission of God really, surprisingly, begins in the book of Genesis. Um, and if we don't understand that the mission of God begins in the book of Genesis, then we misunderstand kind of the posture of God, who is the, uh, the God of all pursuit, or the missionary God himself. Uh, and when we understand that God has a mission, that he himself has been a missionary, it changes everything about the way that then we conduct our lives. Because if God is just some giant taskmaster who's up there saying, you guys need to do a bunch of stuff, then we see our obligation to be good missionaries, then we're going to run out of fuel real quick. Because we're never able to do good enough to please the God taskmaster that's just sitting up in heaven waiting for us to do something. Okay, If that's what's going on, then we're all in trouble. But if God himself has done the work of mission, right? if God himself is a missionary and knows full well better than you and I will ever know the pains and the travail and the test of being a missionary, if he himself has done it, then we have power to be missionaries ourselves. And we know that the motivation for mission is because we're following after a missionary God and that the power to do it comes from him. And that what's so beautiful is that when we imperfectly do our work of missionary work, that we can rest on the one who perfectly did it. Because we don't have to be perfect since he was perfect for us. And so the mission of God begins in Genesis and really it starts at creation. Genesis 1, 1 through 5 says this, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so we know in uh, the, the truth of all existence, God is 
behind it, in it, there, uh, initiating and creating, and that all of this creation is what? It's good, he says in verse 4. And we see also that God then creates sky in verses 6 through 8, and then God creates water, verses 9 through 10, and then there's vegetation in 11 through 13, and then starting in verse 14, we see uh, sun and moon and stars in the sky, and all these things along the way, God is saying it's good. That's good, that's good, that's good. God is pushing himself out into creation. He's displaying his glory through the things that he has made, and he is saying again and again, they're good. Let's make fish and sharks. That's fun. It's good. Let's make animals. Let's make creatures. And all these things he says are good. And then in verse 26, follow along with me. Then God says, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath in, of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so God's creation continues all the way to the point of making mankind in his image, in his likeness, male and female. He makes them to display his glory, and then he says, do my mission. Fill the earth with the knowledge and the glory of God by working out my image through your lives right? He says to go and subdue these things as a representation of God's glory that we would be a part of him making the world the way that he wants the world to be. And there in verse 31, all, all the way through there, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then after the creation of mankind, he says, very good, right? Very good. Because mankind is the pinnacle of all God's creation, the only element of his nature, or the only element of creation that was a representation or an imaging of him, of his very self. Um, and so we see that the very good did not come until after man was created. And then verse, or chapter 2 talks about God resting, and then there's kind of a retelling of the creation of man and woman. It takes that day and kind of focuses in on what God does to create man and woman, and then in chapter 3, which if you have a heading in your Bible, it probably says something like the fall. Verse 6, we'll start there. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was right there with her. And he ate. Sorry, excuse me. Yours isn't in bold. Um, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, started designing clothes, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, But the Lord God called 
to the man and said to him, where are you? We ran. What God said, don't do, we did. What God said, do, we didn't do, and we ran. And God's response, Genesis 3-9, the beauty of our pursuing God, God came down to man and said, where are you? Right? This summer we talked about how where are you wasn't a question that God didn't have the answer to, right? It wasn't like he was saying, where are you? I don't know, right? It was a wake-up call to Adam. It was like, dude, look at yourself. Where are you? Where are you? It was a moment for Adam to awaken more than it was a moment for God to awaken. He knew where Adam was. And Adam could not hide from the pursuing God. Right? In that moment, at that point in creation, was every opportunity for God just to go, whatever. They don't want, they don't want me. They don't want my glory. They don't want to function in the way that I've made them to function. Whatever. Right? But he didn't. From the start, we see this involved, invested, pursuing God of mission. Adam, I'm coming to you. Adam, where are you? And the whole rest of the Bible unfolds the story of what it would cost God to make that statement. For God to say, you're a mess and you're broken and you're fractured from what I created you to be. You don't want anything to do with me. You're hiding in bushes when you were made to enjoy all of the glory of my creation. I'm coming to you, right? And then all of the rest of the story is what it was going to cost God to fulfill that pursuit. What was it going to take? It was eventually going to take the sending of his own son, the coming of Jesus, to be the ultimate expression of God's missionary work. Because in the sending of Jesus, we see the ultimate where are you, where to all of mankind hanging on a cross, Jesus says to us, where are you? Right? Where are you, dead in your sins? Where are you, dysfunctioned and broken? Where are you, running from me? Here I am, dying for you. That was the cost that a pursuing missionary God went to to pursue us. And so in this mission, in this pursuit of mankind, we see a God who has emptied himself of all of his glory so that he might restore us to himself. Right? Just after this, where are you? God actually clothes Adam and Eve in better clothing. He slays an animal to give them animal hide, to dress them better than fig leaves can. And it's a, a foretaste of what God would do through Jesus to slay the Lamb of God so that we might be clothed in righteousness, no longer needing to hide from God because there's nothing to hide because he's wiped away every stain and he's covered every sin. And so to understand the God of mission, even to understand the book of Daniel and the exile in Babylon, which we're going to take a look at, we need to understand that the God of pursuit is always running toward us as humankind. He's always at work in history, in, in, in ups and downs, in the ins and outs of all of creation to bring about the restoration of people to himself. God is constantly asking us the where are you? And now through us, just like through Jesus he did, through us he's asking others the same question, where are you? 
that we might bring that same uh, news of the missionary God to the, the, uh, the lives of people as they question who he is and what it is that he has done. In 2 Corinthians 4, is a beautiful passage that shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan to do this. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 5, it says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, and here we go, tying it all the way back to creation. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the backdrop for a series about mission is the story of our God who pursues lost humanity. That is the setting in which we've set all of the truth of Scripture because he has always been pursuing humanity. And until the final day, he will always be pursuing us so that he might reconcile and redeem and restore creation back to what he intended. And so God's story begins there. Well, God's story begins before the garden, but God's story of mission is shown very clearly in, in, in Genesis 3, 6, and then it leads forward into what we call covenants that God makes, right? So uh, we've got kind of the, the crazy beginnings of things in Genesis where we have, we have uh, nations evolving, becoming groups of people. We see uh, a flood uh, take out the wicked people of the earth because all of the inclinations of all of their hearts were evil from the start. And so God begins again with Noah and he establishes more nations uh, amongst the world. And in those nations, he sees that there is a people that he is going to have to pursue and pull out amongst all peoples. And so he does so through uh, pursuit of Abram, whose name becomes Abraham. And he makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, man, I'm, I'm calling you out of the place where you are. I'm coming to get you to make you something that you aren't by yourself. And the something that I'm going to make you is going to be for the blessing of all of the people of the world. And that was the covenant that he made with Abraham. And we see the generations pass and eventually God establishes the nation of Israel. He leads them out of Egypt and then he brings them into the promised land. And in there, he makes covenant with David, his, his son, and says, I will always have, or you will always have a son on the throne. And I promise you that through that son on the throne, all peoples will be blessed. And eventually we see, like we did at Advent, that Jesus is the final king of David that would sit on the throne of God. And so all of these pieces of history are working together to bring about the mission of God to pursue lost people on the planet. And one of the final things that happens amongst the people of Israel is that they are allowed or they are let or they are brought away into exile in the Babylon. And that's where we pick up Daniel's story, right? So he was a part of a people that were living comfortably in their kingdom. They were functioning within the borders of Israel. They were fighting off enemies and, 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 and living amongst their own tribes. And in the midst of that place, they continued to transgress the law of God, just like their first parents, Adam and Eve, just like us. They continued to rebel and revolt against the God of heaven and earth. And in Leviticus 26, I know everyone's favorite book, right? Leviticus 26, God makes a promise to Israel. He says, if you obey me, I'll be with you and you'll live in blessing and it'll go well with you. If you disobey me, then you're going to get turned over to some bad guys and some messed up stuff's going to happen to you. That's verbatim. I was kidding. And God patiently 
trudges a long history with a disobedient, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. And again and again, they turn from God to other idols. Again and again, they turn from their true king, and they turn to false gods. And finally, God says, enough is enough. I'm sending you into exile. And that's where we pick up in Daniel 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Big, bad, nasty king travels across the land to reach Jerusalem and besieges it. And verse 2 of Daniel 1 should be up on the screen as well. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, that's the king, uh, of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And so this beginning of exile for the people of Israel was part of the promise that God said. He warned them. He said, if you disobey me, if you continue to reject me, then you will be turned over into the hands of a foreign people. And so it is, verse 2, don't miss it, it is the Lord who gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar, right? And we wrestle hard with this, right? Because this wasn't just like some people packed their bags and moved, right? This wasn't just like, hey, you know, Babylon's, that's a happening town. I'm going to go over there. They got new breweries and restaurants. I'm going to chill down there. You got nice beaches. I'm going to Babylon, right? That's not what it was. This was war, Right? This was death, this was destruction, this was being grabbed and led away from your home and your job and your family. It was brutal and hard for these people. And verse 2 is true. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And this isn't like a decent dude, Nebuchadnezzar, right? This isn't like just kind of a you know, well, he's a mayor from the other party. You know, I mean, we put up with him, but we don't, you know, this, like, this dude's nasty, right? This guy's, there's a point in Daniel where he stands on top of the palace, and he's like, man, I'm like God. I mean, people pretty much worship me. I can do anything I want. Like, nobody's had as much money or power as me ever, and I just, I just get to do what I want. Like, that's the kind of arrogance that was in this man, Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, verse 2 is true. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over into his hand. This is tough, right? We struggle with a good God and the idea of punishment and the fact that wicked people prevail, right? And we saw this in our series in Psalms, where some of the psalmists are like, Ah, it's not going right for me, right? The complexity of God being in charge and sovereign and good and then the fact that evil exists and often propagates and continues and grows. You might sit today in this place struggling in a particular area and you have a friend at work or maybe a family member or somebody that you went to high school or college with and you see that they don't give a rip about God. And that that thing that's in your life that is such a struggle for you, it comes like nothing for them. Whether it's money or relationships or jobs. Maybe family members dying, right? 
And we just go, why is it good for them? They're fine. And don't give up anything about God. What is the deal with that? And we just, we wrestle with this, right? And so we look at the book of Daniel, and often we think this dude's just calm, cool, you know, he's like that duck thing, you know, like all chill up top and pat like crazy, you know, like this guy's having a rough go. We've got to understand that Daniel is struggling, okay? There are some really hard things happening in his life. We're going to talk more about him next week, some of the darkness that surrounded Daniel's life. And yet he writes verse 2. God gave Jehoiakim king over to his hand. Larry Osborne says this, that Daniel starts his book by emphasizing that Babylon's victory over Jerusalem wasn't a triumph of evil, wasn't a tragic triumph of evil or good. It was the Lord's will. It was God's doing. Now, Scripture's clear that God does not do evil, nor is he tempted toward evil. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. God is not some fitful, emotional teenager, right? Who's like, okay, this day you're fine with me. Oh, this day I'm going to beat you down. No, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that his compassion is endless. And yet, it was the Lord's will to turn the people to Babylon, over to Babylon. The truth of this reality is so important for us to grasp in the midst of living in our own Babylon. Right? In an empire ruled by a wicked king, and I'm not talking about any type of particular king, although maybe you want me to, but just that the kingdoms of this world, the way this world de- declares its own governance apart from God, just the, the evil things that are on top in this world, that those things exist and that often the truth is pushed aside for lies and that the influences of humankind trump the idea of the, the good God and the creator who loves us, that these are, this is the air that we breathe, the, the water we swim in, however you want to state it, that this is our environment and our world. And as we're here in this place, we can read verse 2. And we can say, this is God. <clears throat> right? Now, God's doing never, this truth of God doing this does not remove responsibility from either Israel or Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Right? We don't get to say, okay, well, then I'm just a puppet, and I don't ever get, it's just, I'm going to just do what God, I don't have any responsibility, I don't have to choose right or wrong, it's just whatever God wants, right? No, we always have the choice to do good or evil. The truth of this is that God is over and above and sovereign in charge even when we are choosing our good and evil. And even when a nasty king like Nebuchadnezzar decided, I'm going to go ransack Jerusalem, I'm going to break everything down, I'm going to take away the temple and its belongings, I'm going to enslave its people, and I'm going to, I'm going to pull them into my country and away from everything that God had given. Even in the midst of that, God is sovereign and in charge. It does not remove the human responsibility. It doesn't give us an excuse to say, well, then whatever happens, Right? It leads us to understand that even in the freedoms of our choosings, 
even in our failings, even in our mistakes, even in our successes, even in our pride and our arrogance, even in our foolishness, God is working out the course of human history. And he's doing it for his glory and ultimately for our good. Now, Jeremiah 29, this is a prophet in the Old Testament who began his prophesying ministry before Daniel was written, but some of his ministry carries over through the time of exile. Jeremiah was given the task to warn God's people about exile. He's like, guys, this is a bad road. Like dark cave, bats flying out of it, ivy hanging down, weird, mysterious sounds from inside. Don't go in the tunnel, right? Like that was Jeremiah's job. And what did the people do? They plowed over him and ran to the tunnel. My God, thanks. What a great ministry. Thanks, Lord. Right? So that was part of what Jeremiah was doing is like, hey, guys, this is coming. Please turn away. Please repent. Please own your sin. Please choose right. Stop choosing wrong. Follow your true God and create it. And people just right, plowed through on their course. And so then the people are taken into exile, like we read in Daniel 1, Babylon. Uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes them into Babylon and, and so on and so forth. And while they're there, some false prophets... Dumb religious people step up and start to tell Israel, hey, guys, don't worry, man, we're going to be out of here tomorrow. Like, just, just hang on. It's all right. It's going to be all good, man. This, this is an accident. God's not mad or anything. This isn't bad. This is just a mistake. It's going to be fine. You don't need to own your sin or repent or anything like that. I mean, that's silly. This, this has nothing to do with you being bad. Just hold on. We're, gonna, we're all going to be out of here in no time. Right? And, and God speaks to Jeremiah and says, those guys are wrong. They're lying to my people Israel. Right? And so Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles. If you have a heading in Jeremiah 29, which is where I'm going to read from here quickly. And it, this is all going to add up. I promise. We're getting there. Um, Jeremiah 29, if you have a heading there, I do anyways. It says Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And so Jeremiah writes this letter as a prophet of God, speaking on behalf of God, telling the people the truth of God. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So there again we see a, a, a Daniel 1-2. Okay, Daniel 1-2 and Jeremiah 29-4, very similar. What did you just say? I sent them. Excuse me, huh? An oppressed people, captive in a foreign land, you sent them? Yep, God sent them, okay? Massive implications on how we view our lives. And so whom I sent from Jerusalem to Babylon, uh, verse five, he says this, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Okay, so he's like, the guys that are saying it's gonna be over quick, don't listen to them. I didn't send them, right? Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise 
and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from the place from which I sent you into exile. The long existence of Israel in Babylon, 70 years, right? Shows something about God's intended plan for exile. And it shows us something about our exile in whatever Babylon we might be captive in. It shows us intention and purpose. It shows us God's presence among us in the midst of it. And it shows us what it's like to conduct our lives in an environment that is hostile to the God of Israel, to the God of all creation. If God can tell them, build a house, start a family, plant a garden, not a garden, plant an oak tree, invest your lives, make the city prosperous. Like, these words are profound when we look at the environment in which these people have been set. We'll look at that a whole bunch more next week, but it has tremendous implications on what God has planned for us. You see, what's behind all this is that there is a greater story and that this chapter of exile for Israel or this period of time for Daniel is an aspect of a very large, grand story that God is unfolding in all history. Part of Daniel is, helps us to see and understand that the coming of God's kingdom is going to come after a certain set of kingdoms rule in the earth, and that ultimately God's glory, his kingdom, will be greater than any earthly kingdom that ever comes about. And he sets the scene for that by sending his people into exile. And it has profound impact on the way that they live their lives and also, of course, on the way that we live our lives. You see, God was unfolding something that these people weren't the center of. Jesus was the center of what he was unfolding. They were a part of the story that God was unfolding, but they weren't the center of the story because Jesus himself is the center of the story. And this is the same truth that we need to hear and that we need to know for our lives because God's hand is in all of these things that are going on in our lives, but we aren't the center and the point of all these things that are going on in our lives. Jesus is. And that our little stories are a part and are woven into the greater fabric of what God is doing in all time. And what is God doing in all time? Well, he started in Genesis. We read about it. He created a world to display his glory. We ran from him and he's pursued us. And he's continuing to pursue us until the end when he says, it's all done. I'm coming and I'm going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm going to ultimately unravel every evil that's ever been done. I'm going to redeem and restore all of humanity. And I'm going to bring a whole new creation about through my work in human history. That is the greater story that all of our little story fits into. And so I... I you, you may have heard the story, or this, this idea, this phrase, that 
you know, when you when you come to Jesus, you can in, invite God into your life or invite Jesus into your life or whatever. And, eh, I understand it's a nice little phrase, but I, I think it's a really misleading phrase, right? Because it gives this idea that I've got this really big life, you know, all 80 years of it. I've got this really big life and I can pull God into my little, you know, it just, it's kind of a little backwards, right? When we realize it's God who has this really big story, this grand narrative, and that I have this little tiny part that I get to be a part of that grander thing. And ultimately that means that he's in charge. And also that he's not shocked and surprised and taken back while things are happening in my life, my life, right? If you were in exile being taken away into Babylon, you might be tempted to think that. What is happening? Oh my gosh. God, where are you? What is going on? I mean, that's real, That's normal, right? That's a, that's a regular human experience, and most of them were probably experiencing something like that. And in the midst of that, we see Jeremiah 29.4, and we see Daniel 1.3, right? That it was the Lord who did it. That it was his work. And if that's true about what's going on, if God is, uh, if, if God's hand is in all of these things, then we can be led to live courageously through the time that he's given us, right? And three things quickly that we're led to when we see that God is in control of all these things. It's one, wisdom, two, humility, and three, hope, right? The wisdom comes like this, and we'll talk about this a lot more next week. Everything that we see in life, we see through the lens of God's truth. When we come to scripture and we see, I'm so sorry, this has been bothering me lately too, uh, that he is ultimately... uh, uh, in control and sovereignly leading all these things out, it leads us to understand the world differently, right? Um, it, it leads us to not uh, wonder if he's lost control. It, it leads us to, to see the, the activity of man and even our own response to things. It leads us to see it in a, in a greater picture, in a wiser way in which we can understand that God is leading all of this stuff together for a good purpose, And so we want to see the world through the lens of wisdom. Again, we're going to talk about that a ton more next week. Another thing that we do when we see that God is in control of all this is that we humble ourselves, right? We have to ask ourselves, what if my story isn't about me, (laughs) right? What if my ultimate pursuit in life is not my own greatness? What if that's not what I'm supposed to be after? What if there is a bigger story or something more for me to live What if I stopped looking toward the future with self-centeredness, right? All of our planning and all of our our fretfulness, all the things that we tend to do as we look ahead, when we put ourselves in the middle of the the story, it leads to all sorts of mess mess that we do. It leads us to be arrogant or it leads us to be anxious. Whereas when we see that it is God leading us toward a future that he knows and that he is unveiling, then man, it has impact on how we see and how we worry or how we boast. Because no longer do we wonder if it's out of control and I've got to get it in control, but we know that God has it all in control. And finally, it leads us to hope. And we need to know this because this is where the rubber meets the road, that if it's going bad for you right now, like if you feel abandoned by God, if you feel as though he's deaf to your cries, and he does not see your sadness or your sorrow or your suffering or that thing you've been waiting for forever, right? If you, if you live thinking God's oblivious to that, then you have nothing but despair. But when we live in these tough moments, 
knowing I'm not the center of the story and God's actually working through this for his great glory, then there's hope in that. Somehow, God, you're going to redeem this mess and maybe I won't even see it, but I know your greater purposes will prevail because they have in the past and I know they will tomorrow. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that's hard right now is going to be made easy for you. Some people would tell you that's what it means and I, I refuse to tell you that because it just isn't true. I hope, right? Like I desperately hope that your sadness has turned into joy here on this planet. But scripture tells me that your sadness will be turned into ultimate joy on a new earth with the new heavens where the kingdom of God is finally perfect. That's where my ultimate joy resides, right? So maybe God will turn your sorrows into happiness here on earth. But I know there's a greater promise, and that's he's going to wipe away every tear. Everyone. Even the permanent ones. You know? Some of you know permanent tears. And if God is not with you, if God is not supreme and sovereign, there's no hope in those tears. But if he is, there's a greater purpose, and it's his work to bring it about. Everything in your life all of your gifts, all of your personality, your whole history, some of it that you want to forget, right? It's all a part. Listen, your mistakes, they're yours. You've got to own them. But God's big enough to redeem, to restore, even in the midst of all these things that we've done wrong. And we see because of the greater mission of God that ultimately that great plan is to restore mankind to himself. Right? It's to get back to a greater Eden. Not just that garden, but a city. <laughs> a city whose light is the glory of the Lamb. Where there will be no darkness. Where no one will turn away from their Creator again. Where nothing will be broken, everything will work right. Where every tear is wiped away. Where Jesus is supreme. And we're all gleefully obedient as we live into what He's made us to be. That's our ultimate hope. And if he's working towards that, then the mission for us ought to prioritize other people being a part of that. Okay? And that's where this whole thing was to get to. Is to William Carey's first commandment of mission, and that is to set an infinite value on immortal souls. If people being in that place rejoicing in the true king one day with us. If that is the ultimate purpose of God's mission, then it is the ultimate purpose of our mission. It's the ultimate purpose of our entire life. Everything is for that. Everything is for the glory of God that people might behold that and see and know that he is good and true and loving and forgiving and gracious and merciful and just. Like Psalm 72, 19 says, Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's the mission of God. And by our coming into his mission through Jesus Christ, that's our mission too, is the whole world filled with the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we behold you and what you have done for us and it is unbelievable that the God of all of heaven and earth pursued sinful mankind 
and did the work to restore us to himself. This is glory. This is supreme beauty. Who else would do what you have done to love a people who turn their back on you? Who else has gone to the extent to forgive and to reconcile? No one. In our best attempts at reconciliation, we've never gone to the lengths and the depths that Jesus went. What a great mission. And to know, God, that all of our mess right now and all of our confusion right now and the hardships we're in or the lostness that we feel or the moments where we're just frustrated with this world and how everything seems to go wrong, all of those things are a part of a greater plan that you are working that will be culminated in the end for the glory of God covering the whole earth. The people will finally truly see Jesus and worship him, the due praise that is ultimately only for his name. God, would you make us a people that are equipped and sent on this mission? Some of us feel like exiles in a Babylon of our own. And there is no mistaking that the world and its systems and the prince of the power of the air are against you and your people, and yet you've sent us here. It is the Lord's doing that we are here. It is the Lord's doing that this is our historical moment. It is the Lord's doing that we have this place and these gifts and this job and these friends and this home. It is your doing that we are here. God, sink that truth so deep into our hearts that it makes a profound impact on the way we live. And Lord, would you please teach us? We are desperate to learn. Teach us the mission of God. Teach us how to seek the glory of God. Teach us how to make Jesus famous in our day, in our time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.